All right, today's topic is food production. We've already kind of played with food production a little bit. We saw the video. We've done that whole activity of could you feed yourself efficiently on $1 a day. Now we're just going to come a little more into this. Um, a few reminders. Um, a few reminders. Uh, less economically developed country. You're going to see it as the abbreviation, LEDC. This is what we used to call a third world country, but we've changed the terminology to be more politically correct. Less economically developed country means that they have low to moderate industrialization and a low GDP. What's a GDP? And what is it an indication of? How much money that country has, right? Are you a rich country? Are your people, for the most part, wealthy? Like, globally wealthy. Remember that dollar a day or more? Or are your people globally not so wealthy? So, MEDC, more economically developed. LEDC, less economically developed. What are we? More. More. What is most of Europe? More. More. What is most of Africa? Perfect. A um, couple other terms. Agribusiness, just what it sounds like, the business of agriculture. And last but not least on here is a COFA. This is a certified organic farming association. In the United States, in order to put the word organic on any of the things that you produce, you have to have the state come in and inspect your land. And your land has to have been like, non-pesticide, non-fertilizer, non-anything for a certain amount of time. This costs a lot of money to have the government come in and inspect your land and to do the paperwork and to get the stamp of approval from the government. Is it possible that you could be an organic farmer and not have the COFA seal? 100%. My favorite fruit stand at the farmer's market is organic, they grow everything in an organic way, but they're just not gonna pay the government to get that certification, right? We don't want the government involved. We don't wanna have that increased cost that then we have to pass on to the people buying our fruit. But if you go to the grocery store and something is labeled as organic, it has gone through the process of getting the government's seal of approval. The idea of subsistence farming is the idea that you are growing what you need to feed your family or maybe like your little individual compound or community. So you are growing in a way that is not for sale. That I'm going to grow all of the fruits and vegetables that I want to eat. All of the grain that I'm going to mill into the flour for my bread. All of the meat that I'm going to feed my family. But I'm not going to grow in excess. I'm not going to sell this to the world at large. Because of that, I can get away with a smaller chunk of land. I can get away with less technology, less fossil fuel input, um, less mechanization, low levels of technology. This is what the family farm used to be. If you go back 200 years in America's history, we were almost all subsistence farmers. Um, we were relying on ourselves, for the most part, to feed our families. With urbanization, in the United States, we have changed to commercial farming, for the most part.
Commercial farming is a large scale operation. It's run like a business, and these tend to be multi-million dollar businesses. Uh, commercial organizations have bought up or land leased family farms. And I think I've mentioned that my husband's family farm is land leased to a commercial operation where they go in and they plant and farm on that land. And they are doing monoculture across multiple farms in the region so that they only have to have one type of machine to do the harvesting, that they only have to buy one type of plant, that they only have to buy one type of pesticide, one type of fertilizer. These are high input, high technology, therefore high fossil fuel reliance. You're doing all of this with machines. Very low manual labor involved in commercial farming for the most part. Um, because you have high fossil fuel and high chemical input, you have high climate change kind of like, ah, possibilities. Couple of other types of farming that you can do. Pastoral farming is saying, look, I own this piece of land that I can't terrace. I can't grow crops on this piece of land. But what I can do is raise goats for milk or goats for meat. And they're gonna live really well on this rocky piece of land that maybe just has some shrub that they can eat. Um, on our pastoral land, we can also raise cows and sheep and llamas and other things that you know aren't grains. I've used the term arable a lot in class. Arable means that this is land that is great for farming. It's flat, it's high in nutrients. It's got a water source nearby. This is the land that I can grow a large amount of food on. Mixed use land is kind of the ideal. Even if we're gonna go commercial, we want it to be mixed use. Mixed use means that I am going to grow animals and crops on my farm. And the crops that I grow, some of those crops are gonna to go to feed my animals. If you have seen the big dairy operations out in Norco or Corona, those are not mixed land use or mixed crops. Those are huge dairy operations that have to have their hay for those cows shipped in on a weekly basis. Once you start having to ship in the feed for your cows, you are increasing your reliance on fossil fuels because you have to have the trailer and the truck to bring that stuff in. And therefore, you are increasing the amount of greenhouse gases you're putting out. Just some facts for you. We have 23 billion livestock animals on the planet. Guys, raise your hand. Anyone vegan? Oh, I'm putting my hand down, sorry. Um, anyone vegetarian? Pescatarian? Okay. Full on meat eater? And guys, that's okay. We are designed as omnivores, which means meat and veggie and green and all of that. That's how our digestive systems do the best. That explains, though, why there are more livestock animals on the planet than there are humans. Um, livestock uses about 20% of the land, and our grains and our crops are about 11%. 70% of all fresh water goes to these livestock animals or these crops. Um, only 7% of Africa is cultivated. Why is that a thing? 
What is most of Africa? So they lack water. They lack arable land. They don't have the good soil. They don't have the great nutrients. Why is having only 7% of your land cultivated a bad thing? You need to import food. If you're only growing 7% of your land, you can't feed all your people with that. And so you're having to import food. That makes you an insecure country for food. That means if there is political turmoil, your people may have to go without. If there is some natural disaster that cuts off shipping lanes or cuts off transportation, your people are going to go without. It's not a great thing to be reliant on others for your food. Um, the world's population has increased by 70% in the last 30 years, but food production's only increased by 17. What does that tell you? Say it louder. Yeah, it's not sustainable. We can't produce enough food for all the people, and we're going to have more people with food insecurity as the population gets bigger. One third of the world's population uses wheat as their main carbohydrate, and carbohydrates are the main part of their diet. Now, when I say wheat, probably 50% of what you guys eat is made of wheat. All of your pasta is wheat-based. All of your breads are wheat-based. Most of your cereals are wheat-based. We have two different types of wheat that we see in the United States. We see whole wheat and then like the yummy white bread stuff. The difference between the two is wheat is kind of like a seed when it's harvested. Whole wheat has the outer husk of that seed still. And they say it's healthier because that's more fiber. White bread or white wheat has that husk removed and it's just the inner part of the seed. That's the same with, by the way, the difference between brown rice and white rice. Brown rice still has the outer husk, which means it has more fiber. They say it's healthier than a white rice that has had that husk removed. Um, other carbohydrates around the world are rice, which is common in Asian countries. Maize, which is just another word for corn. We see that in South America where it originated. Potatoes, barley, sweet potato. Cassava is this. It's a root-like vegetable, kind of like a sweet potato. And then our old grains, old world grains, like millet and sorghum. Millet and sorghum are like the new trendy breads. Because when you make bread out of those two grains, they don't tend to produce gluten. And so people who are gluten intolerant can generally tolerate uh, millet and sorghum. The majority of this type of production is done in temperate areas, which means if you don't live in a temperate area, you have to import these grains. Meat is our second largest portion of our diet. And when we look at meat trends, the more economically developed your country is, the higher your meat consumption. In other words, the more money you get, the more meat you're going to eat. Think about your activity on Friday. Could you eat a lot of meat on your dollar a day diet? No. So that plays into this trend. 40% of all grain that is grown in the United States is grown to feed our cows and our pigs and our chickens. 
So if you drive across the Midwest or fly across the Midwest, those flyover states, most of what's being grown down there is being grown to feed to cows or pigs. When you look at the map, the darker the color, the more meat that's consumed in that country. So United States, Australia, huge meat eaters, more economically developed countries, and countries that were kind of raised or developed on livestock, like on big cattle industry farming. Cows are not the only thing that we eat worldwide. So if you look at the map up here, if it is purple, it's a beef thing. If it's pink, it's pig. If it's orange, it's poultry. And if it's maroon, it's sheep. So we have different sources of meat. Um, in the United States, chicken is king, right? Eat more chicken. Um, and then comes our cow. Very little goat or sheep eaten in the United States. We talked a little bit about this on Friday, the difference between malnourished and undernourished. Malnourished is you're getting enough calories, but you're not getting the nutrients that you need. You can be overnourished and malnourished at the same time. Overnourished means you're getting more calories than you need, like more calories than you're going to burn in a day. If I had a diet exclusively of Twinkies, I could be overnourished and malnourished at the same time because I'm not getting the vitamins and nutrients that I need to be healthy, but I'm getting way more calories than I need, so I become a little roly-poly. Um, unbalanced means you're not getting the micronutrients that you need. Those are the things that we tend to take vitamins to pick up on. And then there is this idea of famine. Famine is large-scale starvation of the people in your country. Give me an example of a country that's undergone famine. Ireland, Ireland for the potato famine. Give me another one more recent. Anyone hear the song, We Are the World? Right. Very catchy, all of the pop stars of the 80s got together and sang a song and sold it to raise money. That was Ethiopia. Um, that's the pictures you see of the little babies that have skinny arms and these big, bulging, bloated bellies. Um, more recently, Sudan has gone through a famine. And we're starting to see it in some of our war-torn countries in the Middle East as their supply routes are being cut off by civil war. So famine is large-scale starvation of a country's people. We are getting better with our nourishment of the world's people. Um, the darker the color, the more undernourished people there are in that country. And you can see the comparison like between 1990 and 2010. It has gotten better. It's not great, but it's gotten better. On average, an MEDC gets about 3,300 calories a day. You guys can like bust that out in one trip to In-N-Out. The cost of food is relatively cheap, and we are getting to choose our food based on preference, not need. So I can sit here and go, God, what do I want to eat for dinner tonight? And then I can go to the store and buy exactly what I want to eat. If you're in an LADC, you don't have that option. You're going to eat what you can afford and what's available at the time. We also have a large amount of food waste in MADCs. Think about your own lives. Do you ever throw away food? Do your parents ever throw away food? 
I know I'll think like, oh my gosh, I can cook on Wednesday. And I will buy on Saturday the things I like think I'm gonna be able to cook on Wednesday. And then life gets in the way and none of the five of us are home and I don't cook. And that was the only day I was gonna be home to cook. And now that food doesn't get cooked and it gets thrown away. Or a kid will say like, hey, get me five bananas. And then they don't eat any of them. And they go bad before I can make banana bread out of them. We tend to throw away a lot of food in this country. Not so much in LEDCs. LEDCs average about 2,600 calories a day. They tend not to be fully rounded calories. So maybe not meat every day. Maybe not um, a fruit or a vegetable every day. Um, we have an issue sometimes in our LADCs about political control over nourishment. So in uh, Haiti, we saw instances of the government controlling what food was released to the people of the country and controlling the citizens by their food release. Um, we also see, again, countries that have to import their food when there is a disagreement between two countries, those food supplies are being cut off. Not very nice, not very humanitarian, but it happens. Oh, one last thing on the slide. Think back to that video with the little Swedish economist and that family in Africa. Anyone remember what crop they were growing? Making you think way back. They were growing sesame seeds. He had a family of eight. Can you eat sesame seeds? Like you can eat them, but is that like a main portion of your meal? No, he's cash cropping. So in our LEDCs, we see a lot of cash cropping. Sometimes it's controlled by government. Sometimes it's controlled by necessity. He really wanted that bike. So instead of doing subsistence farming and farming what he needed to feed his family, he farmed what he could sell so that maybe he could start the cycle out of poverty. But in a way, that kind of hurts too, right? Because if you're not growing things to feed your family, you've got to go out and buy to feed your family. And that kind of perpetuates it as well. Um, the image on the screen is daily calorie intake. Obviously, the darker the color, the more calories you're taking in. That's food loss, kind of interesting. Okay, what determines what you can grow? You gotta have the right climate. You have to have the right amount of rain, the right temperatures to grow your crops. We see our grains grown mostly in temperate areas like the United States and Canada. We see rice grown mostly in Asian countries that are hot and humid. So you have to have the right climate. Um, there are cultural and religion restrictions based on what you can eat. Is anyone Jewish in the room? Okay, are, what are the restrictions for Jewish, do you know? Anyone Muslim? Okay, Muslim and Jewish are the two big ones that have restrictions. Muslim tends to be no pork products. Um, Jewish tends to, I think it's pork as well, but they tend to be very particular about what you store where and with what and how food is processed that's gonna play a little bit into um, our food. How about Indian? No cows. 
right? You go to McDonald's in India, they're not selling hamburgers. So there is some cultural and some religion on this. Um, there is some political, a subsidy. Most of our farmers in the United States are subsidized to grow food, or if there's a huge supply, if it was a great corn year, the next year some of our farmers will be paid not to grow to keep the food prices kind of on an even keel. What's a tariff? A tax. It's on any goods that are imported. Um, so we're going to have some tariffs on the food that we're importing. Or if we try and export our food, some of those have tariffs as well. And then socioeconomic supply and demand comes into play. About the 1920s, 1930s, we had a green revolution. This was the industrial revolution for farming. Like, oh my god, we have motors that now, instead of me pulling my plow by horse, I can do it behind something that's motorized. It's like less work on my part. I can do it faster. We have chemistry that I have pesticides and herbicides and fertilizers. And oh my god, I can grow more and I can grow it more efficiently. There was a lot of good that came out of the Green Revolution. We became more efficient at growing food that we need for our growing population. We're also seeing now, 100 years later, that maybe there was some bad that came out of it as well. And you guys saw that highlighted in the video, that we have kind of gotten away from the lessons that our forefathers taught us about farming and how to work with the land as opposed to against it. Green Revolution is a lot of working against the land. Of what can we do to get rid of pests? What can we do to get rid of weeds? What can we do to ensure that I can grow way more corn than this land typically can hold? Um, and it comes at the price of damaging the environment. It comes at the price of damaging the climate because it's very fossil fuel intensive. All of those motorized things that we're using are using gas and fossil fuels, which is kind of contributing to climate change. We have to find this equal medium where we still produce large amounts of food, where our farmers can still make a good amount of money, but we can do it without harming the environment. Um, we have always had livestock. We eat meat, we like meat, meat's good. We've kind of changed the way we do our livestock farming. It's gone from subsistence to now these huge cattle operations. Um, in subsistence farming, all parts of your cow can be used. So you're going to eat the meat. You're going to eat, they call, they call it offal. Has anyone had offal? It's all the organs, like the brain and the heart and the liver and the intestines. Um, in a lot of cultures, that's delicacy. We tend to just throw it away. We can use the fur for textiles, um, the hide for leather. We can make tools and decorations out of the bones. In commercial meat production, we don't do any of that. But that is kind of the ideal of getting all of the use out of the animal that we can. Um, we do know that we can feed all of that offal, that stuff that we don't want to eat, we can feed it back to the cows and make a bigger, better cow. Yeah, we do feed cow to cow. Um, we kind of stopped that practice a little bit because of mad cow disease, where we figured out when we were feeding the cows of cow to cow that this pyron-based um, disease, mad cow disease, that basically melted their brains was passing among the cattle. And so we kind of stopped a little bit of that practice. 
but it is not unusual to feed leftover animal parts back to, you know, their children. Kind of sad to think. Um, but let's put it in a, in a cheerier tone. In Vegas, there are some buffets that will take all of the leftover food off the buffets and feed it to the pig farm that's outside Vegas and just make more bacon out of it. So it's like a win-win, right? All the food waste gets utilized and we get more bacon because everything's better with bacon. Um, in the video, did you guys catch why we use a lot of antibiotics, especially in our poultry farming? Right, so their immune systems are weak because we're crowding them. You could have 2,000 birds in a space as big as this classroom. And when you put them that close together, their immune systems go down. And if you have one diseased bird, he very quickly spreads it to all of the other birds. So we are preemptively treating these birds with antibiotics. We know that's not a good thing because the more we use antibiotics, especially when they're not necessarily called for, when there's no disease present, the more likelihood we are going to have of resistance, of bacteria that develop that are not killed by any antibiotic. So not a great thing. Um, livestock tends to be really water intensive, and when we talk about eating cockroaches, they'll show that. Yeah, we are getting there. Um, crops are basically seeds that are intentionally sown. When we say we're going to sow something in agriculture, it means planted. Sown and planted mean the same thing. Um, that we're planting in soil, and we are growing for consumption either by us or by our livestock. We are going to use artificial selection and genetically modifying these organisms in order to make the bigger, better crop. Both of this means that we're taking the genes that we like and only replanting those genes, whether we're doing it in a lab or in the farm. Um, we tend to do monoculture. In the video, they touched on monoculture as well. We are doing monoculture in the United States because then I only need one type of machinery. I only need one type of pesticide herbicide. I only need one type of fertilizer. It makes me more efficient as a farmer. I'm not going to go over this chart, but guys, when you're doing your study guides tonight, because I know you all go home after lecture and do your study guides, definitely pay attention to this. You could be asked to write on these examples of different types of agriculture that are out there. So make sure you read through this, make sure you know which ones are good for the environment, which ones are not so great for the environment, and can come up with reasons why. One example I want to point out that I did like in big print here is North America cereal growing. Remember, cereal is not just weeds. Cereal is anything that comes from a grass which is corn, oats, barley, wheat, rice. Um, in North America, it tends to be heavily based on technology, heavy fossil fuel intensive, commercial, we're selling it for profit. In Southeast Asia, they're growing their rice in a subsistence way. They are selling some of their surplus, but the majority is for their family to eat. Their family is out by hand planting these rice fields very low technology, very low fossil fuel input. There's a difference between the two here as far as what's environmentally friendly. Um, two other examples, intensive beef farming in South America versus the Maasai tribe in Africa. One is commercial, one is subsistence. One has heavy technology use, 
maybe not so great for the environment, the other one is subsistence. Hopefully you can figure out which is which. I'm going to skip the efficiency piece because I haven't seen it on a test in a while and just move on. We have improved our technology. We are starting to get back to the roots of how can we keep the green revolution and everything we learned and our low labor, but still be a little better for the environment. In the video, you saw them intercropping. You saw them planting two different crops together because one crop takes the nutrients out, the next crop puts it back in. Um, I know as a home gardener, if I plant my vegetable plot and I plant marigolds as a border, the marigolds will actually repel pests out of my vegetable plot because the, vegeta the pests don't like marigolds. So we are starting to work a little bit more with nature and kind of pairing our planting to help that out. No plow tillage. Saw that in the video as well. That's leaving the stalks of the corn on the field to decompose instead of pulling them all out. That means that I can take the corn and I can sell the corn or eat the corn and then the stalks decompose and when the stalks decompose all of the nutrients that were in the stalks go back into the soil. So then that land is ready for the next growing season. Um, if you look in this picture, these are riparian zones or buffer zones. So anytime I have a waterway running through my farm, I'm going to put in a buffer or a riparian zone. The idea here is that if I were to spray fertilizer on my field, that the runoff will get absorbed by this riparian zone or buffer and not end up in the creek. So that way we limit eutrophication. This is an advancement, low technology advancement at that. Uh, biological control of pests. This is why you can buy ladybugs at Green Thumb. If your parents have rose bushes, as the first buds start appearing here as we come into spring, you're going to see little green buds all over them. Those are aphids. You can buy ladybugs at the nursery, sprinkle them on your rosebuds, and they will eat all the aphids. Kind of cool. Um, and we talked about trickle irrigation before. Pesticides actually are good. We do need pesticides. They're going to increase our crop yield, right? We just have to use them in a judicial way. And we're going to show a video here in a minute that talks about using drones to spot apply pesticides only to the areas where they're needed, as opposed to what you may have seen in a previous picture, where the planes flying over the field just spraying pesticides everywhere. Um, Broad spectrum pesticides. If you have a bug guy come out to your house once a month, he's going to spray a broad spectrum pesticide. This is a pesticide that kills anything and everything. Any kind of creepy crawly that could be attacking your house is going to be killed by a broad spectrum pesticide. That's why we like them. A selective pesticide is when you go to Lowe's and you go, oh my gosh, I've got a wasp nest above my front door, and you buy the spray that only kills wasps or only kills flying insects. Persistent and non-persistent, a persistent pesticide is what the bug guy is spraying. He only wants to come out to your house once a month because that's all you're going to pay for. So the pesticide that he puts out is going to last for one month before it starts to break down. Non-persistent in like a day will break down. Uh, the pesticide treadmill is saying that I go and I spray my broad spectrum pesticide and it kills 90% of the bugs in my house. But 10% are hardy little suckers. 
and those 10% survive. Now I gotta get a bigger, stronger pesticide. And I spray, and 5% of the survivors still make it. Now I gotta get bigger, harder pesticide. And you keep having to make your pesticide gnarlier and gnarlier to kill what's there. That's the pesticide treadmill. And it's hard to get off once you get on. The better idea is to use an integrated pest management system where you are using, yeah, still some pesticides, but in addition to that, you're using other methods to ensure that your crops remain healthy. And I'm gonna show you the video because it explains it really good. Realize if you're sitting the IB exam, this is showing up every year on that test. It might or might not show up on the AP test, but this one shows up on IB all the time. Integrated Pest Management, or ITM, is a holistic pest management approach. By selecting and using several pest control mechanisms, it reduces the status of pests to tolerable levels, while minimizing risks to the environment or human health. The goal of including IPM in the Global GAP framework is ultimately to ensure the sustainable production of a healthy crop. IPM consists of three main pillars, namely prevention, monitoring and evaluation, and intervention. As a first step, maximum effort should be made to prevent problems with pests, diseases, and weeds to avoid the need for intervention. Examples include rotation of crops according to a predefined crop rotation program, ensuring optimal plant spacing or plant density, choosing more resistant plant varieties and rootstocks, and ensuring hygienic conditions in and around the field. Secondly, monitoring and evaluation is the systematic inspection of the crop and its surroundings to identify presence, stage, and intensity level of pests, diseases, and weeds. Examples include implementing a scouting program for the crop and, where possible, planting and monitoring indicator plants next to the production site as well as the use of early warning systems which rely on weather forecasting to alert the producer about a possible increase in disease or pest incidents due to favorable weather conditions. Then, if intervention is required, the producer must consider a combination of mechanical, biological, and chemical methods, such as mechanical or physical removal of pests, diseased plant parts, and weeds, the use of natural predators or pheromone traps, the use of natural products like oils and botanical products, and the use of synthetic chemical plant protection products. Where agrochemical applications are made, optimal application techniques must be followed and agrochemical resistance prevented, for example, by the rotation of active ingredients. Overall, IPM is considered as a flexible system. It consists of a combination of different methods and must suit the local conditions under which the particular crop is produced. For more information, contact Global Gap at info at Alright, so some of the things we can do other than the IPM is alter what we grow. Um, we can genetically modify or breed plants that are more drought resistant. Or in California, the movement has been to pull out all this tropical landscape we have 
and buy native. So I have slowly over the year replaced a lot of my plants around my house with sage, which is a native California drought resistant plant. Why not work with what nature gave us, what's developed here? Um, just for an FYI, people think like, oh my God, GMOs, and we're gonna talk about them maybe today, maybe tomorrow. Um, we have been altering food forever in the farmland as opposed to a GMO that's done in a lab. This is what a watermelon started as before we selectively bred it. This is corn, right? That's a carrot. At some point people said, oh, I can eat that. And then we started selecting things that looked more and more like our current carrot. Um, eggplant, you know, the big purple thing. That's what it looks like. Bananas. Whoever thought that was like the great thing to eat. But we have always selectively modified our food to be more palatable. It's not anything new. It's not anything scary. Um, agroecology is rotating our crops and we've like kind of hit upon that again, again, again. And then there's this idea that we really need to lessen our food waste. Europe kind of has a good thing going. If you're in France or Italy, you are going to the grocery store on a daily basis. Or not really a grocery store, but the markets. And you're buying just what you need for that day. Which means I know right now what my schedule looks like. And it's different than what it looked like at five o'clock this morning before I knew my kid was sick. I could change my plan for what I'm making tonight because I would be going to the grocery store after work anyways. As opposed to in the United States, most of your parents are shopping one day a week. We shop every Saturday. And I'm trying to like think ahead five days. By doing that, there is some food waste inherent as opposed to doing that shopping on a daily basis. We can come up with ways to lessen our food waste. We just have to be better about it. Um, we can monitor and control what comes in and out. Who has come back to California from Vegas by car? How many of you guys have ever been stopped at the checkpoint? Right? They have an agricultural checkpoint a little ways into California. And the goal here is to ensure that we don't get any pests, um, any funguses or any bugs into California that could harm our cash crops. Most likely you're going to get stopped if you have a trailer. And we used to camp outside of California all the time with a trailer. And it's 50-50 whether or not you're going to get stopped, right? They're randomly spot checking you. And the last time I got stopped, we had been on a three-month road trip over the summer when the kids were little. And I had fruits and vegetables from farmer's markets from about five different states. They came into the trailer, they go through all of your cabinets, they go through all of your fridge, they go through all of your under storage, and they collect anything that's fruit, vegetable, or wood. By wood, I mean like um, wood for your campfires, not like wood in the trailer that's like a cabinet, but um, like campfire wood. And then they make a note of where it's from and they put it in quarantine and they see if any bugs appear or hatch or whatever so that they can trace where possible infestations will come from. You're not allowed to bring anything fruit or vegetable into California from another state. Um, historically, I always get stopped when I don't stop at the rest stop right before the checkpoint and throw things away. And I always get stopped um, when I, I never get stopped when I do throw things away. Anyways, totally different aside. 
One of the things we can do as an improvement is change what we eat. We can change our diet. And one of the pushes lately is to move away from meat as our protein source. So, you know, let's see a little video on it because it explains it better than I ever could. Many people find the very thought of insects disgusting, especially when they're in your mouth. But have you ever considered that insects could be more nutritious, environmentally friendly, and abundant than most other foods? Should we all be eating insects? Compare 100 grams of crickets to 100 grams of chicken, beef, or pork, and you'll find that they have comparable protein content, but crickets are much higher in essential vitamins and minerals such as calcium, zinc, and iron. Similarly, insects like mealworms are low in fat and contain large amounts of fiber. But that's not the only reason to incorporate them into your diet. Currently, there are 1.53 billion hectares of cropland and 3.38 billion hectares of pastures covering our earth. Essentially, 38% of the land you see on a map is used for agriculture and farming. But where it takes 200 square meters of land to grow one pound of beef, it only takes 15 square meters to grow one pound of crickets. Furthermore, by 2025, it's expected that 1.8 billion people will live in areas with little to no fresh water. And yet 70% of our fresh water sources are used in agriculture alone. To produce one kilogram of beef, it takes 22,000 liters of water, whereas one kilogram of pork takes 3,500 liters and one kilogram of chicken takes 2,300 liters. But to make one kilogram of crickets, it only requires one liter of water. This is because insects can become fully hydrated just from the food that they eat. They're also more digestible. In fact, 80% of a cricket is edible and digestible compared to 50% of a chicken and 40% of cattle. And it's not like our mouths have never tasted insects before. For every 100 grams of spinach, 50 small insects like aphids, thrips, and mites are permitted. Peanut butter is allowed to contain roughly 30 insect fragments, such as heads, bodies, or legs per 100 grams, and even the hops used to make your favorite beer can contain 258 bits per 100 grams. Yep, your summer beer may be spiked with a little more bug juice than you anticipated. So why aren't we eating insects? They're actually consumed in some parts of Asia, Latin America, and Africa. In fact, the capital of Congo has households eating 300 grams of caterpillars a week, which is 96 tons of caterpillars every year. But much of the Western world is used to screaming in disgust if they find a bug in their salad. This may be because Western culinary traditions have spawned out of colder climates with less insects, increased farming, and larger animals to eat. As Europeans began to colonize the world, they contextualized bug-eating as savage and primitive because they observed many indigenous people doing it. Little did they know, bugs are actually extremely nutritious. But while the idea of eating insects may literally be hard to swallow, as recipes are created, insect processing food technology evolves, and our mindsets adapt, maybe insects will become the superfood of the future. Look out, Greek yogurt and kale, there's some new kids in town. We actually challenged ourselves to chomp down on some bugs, try out a few recipes, and eat things like cookies and snack bars using insect flour in our latest ASAP Thought video. We also discussed the role and potential for insects in helping to solve world hunger. Make sure to click the screen. All right, you can buy um, cricket flour and you can buy the protein bars that are made with crickets. A few years ago, a student had one I tried it. It's not bad until your mind gets involved and you go, oh god, I just ate cricket. Um, so if we can eat it without thinking about it, it's a great source of protein. Actually better for the environment to grow bugs than it is to grow cows. We can eat seasonally. By seasonally, it means that we eat things that can actually be grown in our area during that season. Okay, so let me ask you this. 
Are strawberries in season in California right now? No. Can you buy strawberries at the grocery store right now? Where are they coming from? Somewhere else. They're coming from South America. Um, Chile, Argentina, Brazil, which means by eating non-seasonally, we are increasing the transportation or miles that our fruit is moving, which is increasing our fossil fuel dependence, which is increasing climate change. So the idea here is to eat seasonally. All right, genetically modified organism is an organism that we have improved in the lab by taking genes of one organism and putting them into another. Historically, the two big ones here are Bt corn, which is the majority of the corn grown in the United States. We've taken a gene for insect resistance and we've planted it into the genetic or genome of corn. And now the corn is insect resistant, which means we're losing less corn to crop damage. Awesome. In Asia country or Asian countries, there was a major vitamin K deficiency. Um, and so we took the gene for making that vitamin and put it into rice and solved that deficiency. So genetically modified solves a lot of problems. A lot of people are terrified of it because it's in a lab and it's not natural. It's just a quicker way of doing what we've done through selective breeding. In the United States, these are all of the things that are genetically modified and in the United States, they don't need to tell you. In a lot of European countries, foods are labeled as genetically modified. There is a big push because of that fear mongering that, oh my gosh, it could cause cancer, it could kill you, we don't know, it's in a lab and lab is bad and science is bad. To label foods in the United States as non-genetically modified, it gets people to buy it. It's not any better than the Wheaties that are genetically modified. All right, last thing, this idea of CAP. CAP is the European Union's common agricultural policy. It is subsidizing agriculture in Europe, which means that the government is paying our farmers to farm. 40% of the EU's budget goes to subsidizing farmers, to helping farmers continue to farm. So that's a huge amount of their budget. It's going to set the price for agricultural goods. It kind of eliminates the supply and demand idea by setting a price at a governmental level for milk. Um, we don't do that in the United States. I remember when my mom was still living in Indiana, I went and bought strawberries the day before I left to Indiana at the field where they were being grown and they were $7 a pint. I went to Indiana and I bought California grown strawberries for $2.50 a pint, right? And they had to be shipped to Indiana. We don't set a price, Europe does, and it kind of makes sure that there's no overcharging or undercharging. Puts high tariffs or taxes on food that's imported. That ensures that Europeans eat European food. Some of the problems, um, people say that a cow in Europe makes more money a day than a person in Africa based on the subsidies. It keeps some food prices artificially high. Even in a good growing year, you're still going to pay a high price for that food. The same price that you would pay in a bad growing year, it gets rid of supply and demand and encourages high yield and high surplus. 
All right, that's where we end for the day. Thank you for bearing with me.